Hi, this is Sherry from Scaredy Cats, the podcast, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter is dominated by a meeting between Bromley and Shrawl on one side and the companions on the other as they talk into the small hours in the cellar of the alehouse. They discuss many things, including the deaths of Tamlin and Cole, the Companion's success in upsetting the King's Three Days of Blood and Justice, Colfi's fate as reported by Briar Patches, and the Authority's abduction of the clerics of the Church of Sidal. Finally, Bromley and Troll make their pitch. They ask the PCs to assassinate a man named Goddard, who is the current Lord of Nepule. The episode ends on a dark note. Sivan, whose true form as a succubus is now revealed, has been killing prisoners in the dungeons under Whitestone Castle and delivering them to Azor Azul in order to restore her master's strength. She has run out of victims in the lower level and has started working her way up, taking souls from the main dungeon. Krell, alerted to the grisly and mysterious deaths, has gone to investigate, but so far he has not had much success in finding the cause of the killings. Chapter 49, Part 1, Day 127, Late Morning, Party Status. After natural healing, the party members' hit points are as follows. Yellowfly, 27 of 30. Shawnee, 22 of 22. Jace, 31 of 31. Catsbane, 14 of 15. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized, read languages, magic missile, invisibility, and mirror image. Bazu has prayed for, detect evil, cure light wounds, and bless. Bromley had written them a note and sent them on to the Laughing Maiden Inn, a fish fry restaurant on the coast with a perpetually vacant single room on the second floor. There, they were to give the note to a man named Zeb, who worked there as a cook, and he would set them up with a key, food, and anything else they might need. Bromley said they'd be there for just a night or two, while more plentiful and spacious accommodations were being arranged. Zeb was a stranger to the companions, but Cole had known him well. Zeb had employed him in the kitchen now and again, whenever Cole needed some extra money. The single vacant room that never had a guest. Zeb's extensive knowledge of Napule's history it would have all suddenly made sense if Cole had survived to be there now. Zeb was a high-ranking member of the Free League of Nepule, and the room over the restaurant was used as a secret meeting place for the leadership. 
Not long after each of them had dropped their few belongings and staked out a scrap of floor space for their bedroll, Yellowfly asked Shawnee, who by general consensus was given the use of the single small bed for herself, how she had known that Bromley and Shrawl were trustworthy men. I knew they were unsure about us, and that told me I could be reasonably sure about them, came the wry reply. Yellowfly tapped the side of his nose and gave her an exaggerated conspiratorial wink. Uh, you heard part of their conversation, I'll wager. He remembered Shawnee having held up a finger to silence them as she listened to the stranger's approach. Indeed, I did, she teased. Well, what did you hear? One said to the other that we were no blind men of the orchard. You remember the story? Yellowfly nodded sagely, as did Catsbane. Tam had told the parable to his companions once or twice. Jace and Bazu looked at each other nonplussed. Bazu shrugged, but Jace huffed and said, For the ignorant among us, would you care to elaborate? No need for sarcasm, Jace, scolded Shane. I'd be happy to tell you. She fished Tam's orphan key on its chain from under her shirt and held it in her hand as she told the parable to Bazu and Jace. When she was done, she said, And so, when the man said we were no blind man of the orchard, he meant... He meant that his companion was not merely seeing what he wished to see. Bazu nodded as he spoke. Correct, confirmed Shane. Bromley was hoping very badly to find some companions for his cause, and, evidently, Shrawl thought that we were the genuine article. Shane, if I may, that key you hold, was that Master Tamlin's holy symbol? Shane looked misty-eyed for a moment before she sniffed and said, It was, yes. Then she tucked it back under her shirt to communicate she did not want to discuss it further. Bazu picked up the unspoken communication and changed the subject back. Shane, you must have very keen ears indeed to have heard those men's conversation from such a distance. Shane shrugged and bit into a strip of dried fish, part of the provisions Zeb had given them. It is a truly miraculous gift. Dramatis Personae Shane. This was her third stint in prison. The first two, both for the crime of insolence, had lasted three months apiece. As an adolescent, Shane had trouble keeping her opinions about the merchant class to herself. This time, her sentence was five months, but she hadn't even offended any wealthy people this time, at least not directly. This sentence had been given her by the magistrate for the crime of fighting in public. The old magistrate had warned her that if it hadn't been a fellow urchin she had beaten up, the sentence might have been much longer. It didn't help that the beating had been given in midday, right in front of an audience of shop-going nobles in the merchant's district, not too far from the Dunwich Cidery Company, as it happened. If you wish to stay out of prison, stay out of trouble, and stay in the warrant where you belong next time, the magistrate had advised, waving her off to hear the next case. She'd been taken, in irons, by a pair of her suit guards and thrown in a communal cell under Whitestone Castle. As with her previous days in the very same pen, she reflected with bitter humor that living under a castle was the closest she would ever get to living in a castle. The three stays in Culfrey's dungeon, combined, totaled almost a year in length. She learned a lot in that almost a year. She was already fleet of foot, quiet as a mouse, and reasonably adept at cutting purses by this age but it was the people she met in Whitestone's dungeon that took her skills to a new level. Down there, in the dark, there was nothing to do but talk. The men and women who languished alongside her were not stingy with their stories, either. Shawnee proved to be an apt pupil. It was here that she learned how to load dice, cheat at cards, and even find and disable traps. There was Shortstraw, who called himself the best unlucky thief in Silmoral, and Tian, the horror, 
who painted her lips and cheeks red. There was Gerhardt, the smuggler, and Viora, the forger. Each one had something to teach her. The dungeon was more of a school for thieves than a place to do penance. But for all the advice and mentorship, the thing Shawnee learned best, she learned on her own. It was in the dungeons under Whitestone Castle where, more than anything else, Shawnee learned how to listen, and not just to criminal stories. She would have developed an acuity of the sense even if she had not bent her efforts to improving it. For down in the dark, prisoners tend to notice which of the guards was approaching by the cadence of their boot-shod gait or the way they jingled their keys. Some guards were kinder than others and would give a little extra food. Some were cruel and enjoyed beating the inmates, or worse. Prisoners came and went, and as we've said, they all liked to talk about themselves. Often they did so in whispers, and when they thought no one could overhear, Shawnee learned where certain valuables were hidden, the location of dead drops, whose prospects were good and whose were ill in the ranks of the underworld, who had betrayed whom, which nobles would give into blackmail and which would not. All of these things could be had for the talented eavesdropper, and for free. It was in this way, incidentally, that Shawnee learned about the existence of the Smuggler's Channel in the Rosedale District by careful attention to the inmate Gerhardt, who would never have shared that information with her willingly. Ultimately, it was her ability to overhear important details that led her to eventually join the church. But that is a story for another time. Speaking of Shawnee and her skills, today is a level up episode for the rogue. She has just achieved level seven. Let's get her character sheet and some dice and see how she'll improve. First up is an increase to her hit point maximum by one D4 plus one for her constitution. The roll. A three plus one is four and Shawnee now has a new max HP of 26. A great start. Let's see if her good luck will continue. Potential ability score bonuses are next. Will her strength improve? A six on a D6 means it will. I've got a four. Intelligence. A three. How about wisdom? She's heard enough of Tamlin's parables that I feel she should improve here. A six. Wow, can these dice hear me? Her terrible score of six becomes seven. Dexterity. It goes without saying that she could use it, and I think she deserves it. Don't you, dice? A five. I guess not. Constitution. A four. Charisma. A one. Still, I feel this has been a good level up. Her thieves skills also rise by roughly 5% across the board, too, of course. You know, I like Shawnee more and more as time goes on. I really hope she'll be with us all the way to the end. Of course, the dice will do what the dice will do. All I can do, much of the time, is roll them and weep. But still, here's hoping. How do you fix a quandary? There's only one solution. Portal Quandary is a Dungeons and Dragons real play comedy, drama, dramedy, dramedy podcast about a party of mismatched heroes trying to do just that. Join Dungeon Master Tyron Cross as he hurls our Melbourne-based party into a mystical world full of strange creatures, stranger people, and strangest of all, unanticipated self-discovery. Gross. Listen to Portal Quandary now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Episodes released tri-weekly. Chapter 49, Part 2, Day 127, Late Morning. Krell tried to question the female prisoner who had been mysteriously spared, and for two nights now, while the occupant of the cell across from her had been torn to pieces. Whatever she had seen or heard must have broken her mind, for now she uttered nothing but mad laughter while pushing her body into the corner of her cell as though willing her flesh to become a part of the stone. 
still feeling cloudy-headed, he left the dungeon, climbing the stone steps that led to the main level of the castle grounds. It did not take long for him to detect that something had changed. Things were even quieter than usual, and, correspondingly, there were very few people around. He beckoned to the first guard he saw, a young man with an unkempt beard and a uniform that needed washing. You! He called. Come here! The young guard sauntered over, not quickly enough for Krall's liking. My lord, he drawled, bowing low. Where is the warden? Why has he not yet returned? I know not, my lord, came the wheedling reply. Where is everyone? Has anything happened? Krell realized that he had been spending so much time below ground that he might well have missed something. The queen departed early this morning. She took a whole train of liveried domestics and several guards with her. I can tell you that. What do you mean, the queen left? Only what I said, my lord, returned the guard, shifting his weight. There was something plaintive in his voice that Krell found irritating. Where was Her Majesty going? He felt his face turning red, not in anger, but gall, for having to get his information from a lowly guard. He added an unnecessary, Speak up, man! The other seemed unbothered by Krall's remonstration. He shrugged. Someone said she's going back to Zesha, my lord. Can't say if that's true or no, but she took enough with her to be gone a long while, I'd reckon. Trunks and chests and bags. She had a dozen men just to carry it all. And the princess? Lephasia was with the queen. Saw her myself. Krell decided to change tack. Captain Zinwan, then. Was he with her? Not that I saw, my lord. That was a relief. Then where is he? I haven't seen the captain in a day or two, my lord. The men who remain, they wonder where he was, and- What do you mean, the men who remain? Spat Krell. Many of the palace guards have left. I couldn't tell you where or why, but not I, my lord. I swore an oath, and I man my station. And I would never do- Yes, yes. Very good. Krell walked away without saying more, leaving the guard with his self-congratulating incomplete. The dungeon's entrance was not particularly close to the main structure of Whitestone Castle. Even directly, it would have taken him several minutes to cross the grounds and reach it. But Krell made a point to take a circuitous route, passing by several barracks, guard stations, servants' quarters, and then entering the castle proper through the kitchens. Wherever he went, he found rooms that were empty, or nearly so. When he encountered a servant or a guard, invariably hurrying to look busy when they noticed Krell's outfit, he questioned them. Most knew nothing. None could tell him more than the first guard had to explain the Queen's sudden and unannounced exodus. No one had seen Captain Sindwan in the past 24 hours. Instead of going up to Culfrey Salon as he might have done, Krell decided to visit the Tower of the City Watch. Perhaps there, he would find some answers. He was relieved to see that, as he left the castle, the doors through which he walked were guarded by a pair of burly men wearing the green and black. He snapped his fingers at them as he approached, without breaking stride, and they obediently opened the doors to allow him by. Between the Lines, Nepule and Lord Goddard. Nepule is a very different place from Silmoral. Most immediately noticeable is its size. While Nepule has a population of several thousand souls, this is only half the population of the capital. Silmoral is located on a clifftop overlooking the mighty Blue Heron Lake, whereas Nepule touches the shore directly. For this reason, fishing is one of its primary industries. Silmoral has outer and inner walls, largely to separate the classes, but Nepule has but a single outer wall. The capital boasts the impressive Whitestone Castle. 
Nepal has nothing of the sort. There's no palace, castle, or even a keep. These were all torn down when it was annexed three centuries before by the regent Thury. He made no effort to disguise his reasons either. Nepal needed enough in the way of defenses to keep threats from the west at bay, but never enough that it might challenge the capital. By royal decree, no buildings may be constructed for military purposes. Therefore, those who carry the sword and shield do not congregate in any single place. There's no mass barracks or training grounds. Instead, numerous small, dissimilar places combine to provide these necessities. As for the leadership, in Nepal, there has never been a one who cannot trace their lineage back to the original Kamors. The nobility all live within fortified compounds, rarely venturing forth to interact with the city folk, who hate them and all they represent. Evidence of Nepulik's resentment toward their overseers is everywhere. The most obvious refusal to conform is found in their accent, which they proudly preserve. Nepulik's show their differentness in numerous other ways as well. Their cooking is known for its simplicity and strong flavors. Its brewing is famous all over Camertine and beyond. Their songs and art are infused with a chaotic energy diametrically opposed to the controlled order and design of Silmarillion taste. One thing that's noteworthy in its absence is graffiti. Nepulix are proud of their heritage and their city. They would not vandalize the place they love best. At least by the standards of the time, Nepul is clean and, most would say, warm, charming, and possessing of a small town atmosphere that belies its size. Because of the prohibition on military structures, Nepul's skyline is mostly broken by towers. Watchtowers and church towers are permitted by law. Many of these have tall and spiky steeples that needle the firmament. Yet another difference from Silmoral, where crenellated parapets and flat-top towers are most common. The man in charge of running Nepal and suppressing its occasional outbursts of independent spirit is Lord Goddard. Lord Goddard is a third cousin to King Culfrey and therefore a man of status and wealth. The folk of Nepal largely hate him, as much on principle as for any other reason, and of course the PCs have been tasked with assassinating him. So who is this man, exactly? I haven't got a clue, not one, but I'm absolutely looking forward to dreaming him up at random. Here's my plan. I've made a kind of three-point generator that uses a D20. I think it'll provoke some results that I wouldn't come up with if I just spun him out of whole cloth. I'll start with his age. A D20 roll will put him anywhere from six years old to 86. There's no math about to happen here. I'm just going to roll the die and pick an age that makes sense. I got a 13. I think that makes Goddard a man of about 50 years. Okay, that's a start. What's his disposition like? Another d20. The lower the number, the nastier he'll be, and the higher, the kinder. The roll. A 17. Interesting. The PCs are now charged with murdering a gentle, middle-aged man. Now I wonder, is Goddard a powerful man? I mean, beyond the scope of his station in life. Another d20. The higher the roll, the more powerful. A very high roll might indicate some special abilities or circumstances. The roll. A two. Oh, that's a surprise. I interpret this very low roll as, oh, I know. Okay, I think I've got a good start in fleshing out the companion's mark. Let's return to the narrative. By now, the PCs will be making some plans. Chapter 49, Part 2, Day 128, Late Afternoon. Party Status After natural healing, the party members' hit points are as follows. 
Yellowfly, 28 of 30 hit points. Shane, 26 of 26. Jace, 31 of 31. Catsbane, 15 of 15. Bazu, 13 of 13. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Read Languages, Magic Missile, Invisibility, and Mirror Image. Bazu has prayed for Detect Evil, Cure Light Wounds, and Bless. They had slept much of the previous day, having been up all night with Bromley and Shrawl. Feeling somewhat refreshed, in the evening they sent Jace and Bazu down to the kitchens to request food and drink from Zeb, their host. When they returned, the former had a plate of fried fish, and the latter carried a small keg in his arms and was smiling broadly. They spent a quiet evening in. Shanae looked out the small window at the frozen expanse of Blue Heron Lake behind the restaurant. Jace mended his frayed cloak with a bone needle and some thread. Catsbane looked about their new apartment and discovered a thick leather-bound tome on the shelf. Opening it, he found that it contained a long history of Nepul. While reading, he would occasionally look up and say things like, Did you know that Nepul was annexed in the same year that Brannon was founded, and that no Nepulic has ruled here for over 300 years? Bazu looked up with some interest. Jace and Yellowfly grunted a weak acknowledgement that they were paying attention. Catsbane had more to share. The last Nepulic leader was a woman named Kabalef. Apparently, the regent Thuri ordered her head cut off and raised on a pike. He had the pike lashed to the steeple spike atop the southwestern guard tower. I- isn't that the same tower near Master Haloran's butcher shop? That's right, said Shane, still looking at the window. It was left there for months, until the birds and flies had eaten every bit of flesh away. According to this book, her skull was then placed into the keystone of the Lord's Manor when they built it. How awful, observed Bazio. Just a little after dawn of the next day, the companions, who were mostly awake and up, heard a gentle knocking at their apartment door. When they asked who was there, a small voice gave them the correct passphrase that indicated membership or sanctioned by the church. And after giving the appropriate response, the door was opened to admit a boy of 12 or 13 years. He had wheat-colored hair and pale blue eyes. Without any hello or introduction, he bade them to collect their things, as he had been instructed to take them to their new temporary home. The companions obeyed, with Catsbane reluctantly replacing the unfinished volume of history on the shelf and closing the door behind him, as he, following the rest, left the single apartment over the Laughing Maiden. Outside, it was a mild and bright, windless day. The boy led them along the lakeshore with its hoary, cracked, and frozen water for a few minutes, and then turned up a dirt road. They passed a cluster of homes and small businesses, most of cob construction, but also some of timber. Eventually, they came to the place he indicated as their destination. Producing a large key of iron, he bowed, accepted a silver coin from Shawnee, and sped off. Using the key, Yellowfly led them into the squat cob structure, more round than square in shape. It had a roof covered in ceramic shingles and a large chimney of brick. Evidently, the place had once been a potter's workshop, as all of the instruments of that trade were present, including a wheel and a small kiln attached to the chimney. There was an empty iron rack that had once presumably contained fuel for the kiln, two empty buckets the size of wash tubs, both dry, and six large sacks that all turned out to be full of sand. There was a workbench with an assortment of combs, knives, and stamps along the wall, with a crate of broken tiles beside it on the ground. 
Later, Yellowfly would learn that the owner had passed away and left the business to Bromley in support of the Free League of Napule. Bromley had wished to sell the place, but as of yet had not found a buyer. Its availability was fortuitous, and for the foreseeable future, it would be the Companion's home in Napule. After they got settled, the Companion split up. Yellowfly took Catsbane with him to visit Shrawl at the horse, where they were to receive some further information and instructions. Shawnee and Jace went into town to locate the Goddard estate and do a cursory circuit of the perimeter, looking for any obvious weak points. Bazu decided to visit the local church of Sadal to ask a few questions. Yellowfly had previously instructed him to be judicious with how much information he volunteered and forbidden him to use any of their names or the names of Bromley and Troll. It was late in the afternoon by the time they all reconvened at the Potter's studio. Shawnee and Jace were the first to return. They had purchased the necessary supplies and were busy drawing a map of the area they had scouted. It wasn't much. The estate was surrounded on all four sides by a 20-foot wall, the top of which had an ironwork of evenly spaced downward slanting spikes to dissuade climbers. The way the spikes had been placed provided no opportunity for the use of a rope, unfortunately. There were no buildings nearby from whose rooftops they might access the estate with greater ease, though there were a few from which they might post a lookout or a spy. There was only one single gate through which all egress or access was possible. It was, as they had expected, something of a fortress. In addition to the rooftop locales, they were able to discover several places that would allow for a street-level observer to remain mostly hidden from view, both in front and in the rear of the estate, and they traced a number of viable escape routes from both of these positions as well. Bazu returned to the Potter's studio next. He had been cautious to a fault and learned only a little, though he remarked that the church was a charming old place and well worth a visit. In gently questioning his fellow clerics about Lord Goddard, he had learned that the man was disliked for his bloodline, but generally tolerated because he regularly contributed to charities run through the church of Esseluna. Those clerics who had met him personally had found him to be pious and agreeable. Bazu had also found out one more surprising piece of information, and he had been about to share it with his two colleagues when Yellowfly and Catsbane opened the door and entered. Yellowfly looked distraught. Catsbane didn't look happy either. The former tossed a large and somewhat heavy package on the ground by the potter's workbench and immediately shared the same intelligence Bazu was about to reveal. We're not going to like this. They want us to... Vesselina's tears. I'm not sure this is something I'm prepared to go through with. What is it? asked Shane, somewhat alarmed. Bazu raised a finger in the air, about to chime in, but Yellowfly cut him off, tossing his cloak on a peg as he spoke. Catsbane, why don't you tell him? Yellowfly huffed away to take a chair by the fire, but they heard him mutter as he went. Might as well ask me to strangle an old lady. Uh, um, uh, Stammered Catsbane. Very well. Um, uh, the, the thing is... Well, uh, the thing is that... This man we've been asked to murder is blind. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on X. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is from Reddit. It was posted by Rogue3 underscore RT, and it's actually not about the podcast, but my ultralight game, One Shot in the Dark. Rogue3 RT writes, I love this game. 
It's simple, yes, but that's what I enjoy about it. Really fun for someone like me that just wants to basically hack and slash in some dungeons and caverns without so many rules to worry about. Brilliant. Thanks very much for the review, Rogue3RT. I had a lot of fun making that game, and it seems to have found a home out there, especially with younger players or players new to RPGs. It's a special thrill to me to think that folks are playing a game I made and having fun with it solo or with a group. It's actually close to going gold on DriveThruRPG. Not quite there yet, but with help from people like you, that may well happen. I'd also like to thank this episode's superb voice talent. I've got my regulars here today. Jace, Bazu, and Katzbane are voiced by the Tumble Die team of Andrew Fling, Kevin Berenger, and Kyellen. My thanks as always to these fantastic guys. Also back in his usual role of Krell is Simon J. Williams of Legend of the Bones. It's a classic lineup. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a webcomic based on the classic D&D adventure module, The Keep on the Borderlands. Follow a party of adventurers as they travel through the adventure. This comic is driven by characters, but the results of actions are based on dice rolls, just like a tabletop game. Start reading this exciting webcomic now. Visit thekeeptontheborderlands.justinpfeil.com Let's discover together what's going to happen.